Let us open the word of God. If you have a Bible at hand, we're in the New Testament, the book of Luke. We're starting chapter 12. So we're almost halfway through. Um, Luke chapter 12, as you're opening to that, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream or catching the recorded message a little bit later. May God's word bless you and lead you closer to him. We invite you to join us here at Clifton Park Community Church and participate in the life of our church. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Jesus is still teaching his disciples as they're proceeding towards Jerusalem. He had sent disciples ahead in all these villages, and he's finding out that crowds are coming out from the villages and and joining his uh, travel. Luke 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. The sermon title this morning is A Right Trajectory for Fear. And uh, I do enjoy words. The word trajectory is is a great one for this particular case. A right trajectory. Maybe you've heard that phrase. It's common now in English language. It's generally used to refer to something that's progressing well and remains on the path to success. A trajectory that's right, that's great. Literally, a trajectory involves uh, a projectile that is aimed and, and sent on its way with the appropriate amount of arc or path or, I'm not getting into vector analysis, sorry to disappoint any engineers. Uh, trajectory, when you, when you put something in motion so it will reach the target. As a child, one of the great things I inherited from my mother was uh, her longbow. She had a, 
uh, a bow and arrow set, and it was just a very simple, straight, long bow, probably five feet tall. It was as tall as me when I was young, and some practice arrows. And without much instruction, we would just go out into the yard and into the fields and, and shoot at things. And you realize with the bow and arrow, if I wanted to go from here and, and, and shoot something there, I just don't go straight at it, do I? What will happen? The arrow will fall off and embed itself in the ground, and it'll come in at such a low trajectory, you might lose your arrow in the grass. I don't know where some of those arrows are today. But what do you do? You actually aim higher and set the trajectory so you will hit your target. Jesus, in this passage, these 12 verses, wants us to adjust our trajectory when it comes to certain spiritual qualities. Who do we fear? Who do we trust? Who do we serve? Who do we allow to affect our behavior? Jesus says, raise your trajectory. Don't fear men. Focus on God. That, that's, I think, the gist of where the passage is going. And I think we'll see that in, in each of the three paragraphs. Jesus is aiming there to equip his disciples, especially as the crowds grow and dangers grow, as they're heading to Jerusalem, he takes his disciples aside and says, listen up, you need to know this and adjust these trajectories. I think that's what Jesus is doing. The master teacher, the one who cares as a careful shepherd of his people. And these are things for us. This was no mere academic exercise for the disciples in the first century. Uh, Eleven of the first twelve disciples all died a martyr's death. And I'm no prophet today, but Christians today are paying the price for their faith for following Christ. Let's look first at uh, these subtle fears and sins in this opening paragraph, these first three verses, um, Jesus is, is really giving a warning. He says, beware of something. And he points out something very subtle. And it is a type of fear, and it is certainly a type of sin. Uh, well, the people had gathered together, and the crowds were doing what crowds do, jostling and trampling. Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there were some real dangers here. First, the, the danger of the crowds getting tossed about and, and not able to follow Jesus because of the sheer numbers. That's part of the reality. He wants them to stay close to him. But then he points out, he'd been talking about the Pharisees at the end of chapter 11. He points out their hypocrisy. He's not talking to the Pharisees here. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, the words I had for them, I also have for you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says, uh, beware of their influence coming upon you and creating hypocrisy in you. And as he says, beware, and we use the word danger here, it is a real danger. Back in chapter 11, Jesus had spoken of how prophets had been killed. And he knew what would happen to these disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. He knew the difficulties they would face. 
jail, persecution, and death. So Jesus is talking about real dangers, and he wants them to pay attention. Jesus describes the Pharisees' hypocrisy with this word picture, leaven. That's a kitchen thing, right? Isn't that, I mean, yeast and leaven. Leaven is the older, now we can buy yeast in a little package. You can get quick acting or slow acting or award winning acting. I don't know. You can buy your yeast. But in the ancient world, the leaven was that little bit of fermented dough that was kept over for the next loaf. And that little starter, some places still call it starter, can be added to the new flour and water mixture, what have you, and it begins to affect the whole. If you've ever seen bread rise from this little ball into something bigger, then you knock it down, let it rise again. That's the work of the yeast, or here, the leaven. Jesus says these Pharisees are like that. What are the qualities here? Well, it works slowly and secretly and silently to affect everything. There was a a truck accident the other day in a different place in our country and all of a sudden people were taken ill because out of this truck spilled a gas that was probably, I don't know if it was odorless, but you don't see the danger right away. But it comes and you feel the effect within you. Jesus is warning his disciples, don't let their hypocrisy infect you. The things that the Pharisees were good at, scrupulous scrupulous care to external matters and neglecting their heart, Jesus doesn't want that in his disciples. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to go through the motions. He wants a religion of the heart. So don't let their hypocrisy infect you. As the crowds gather and the Pharisees pursue Jesus, remember they were, according to the end of the last chapter, pressing him hard to provoke him. What do you think they would do to his disciples? So Jesus warns the puffed up Pharisees. You may have heard of the old English Bible translator John Wycliffe. He commented on this very passage, noticing how the Pharisees are puffed up. He says it makes the loaf, this leaven, makes the loaf look more substantial when in fact it is less nourishing and far more quickly grows stale and worthless when it's unchecked. Jesus doesn't want that subtle hypocrisy to affect us. So be careful for your soul. That's going to be a theme that he repeats before he's done about being careful for your soul and being careful with your contacts. And one of the reasons he gives in this opening paragraph why we should be careful, why we should avoid this hypocrisy, he says in verses 2 and 3, he takes two verses to make the point, the truth will come out in the end. So why pretend, why follow the Pharisees when their hypocrisy will come to, out in the end, and you don't think that you can just put up a facade and still partake of sin or what have you, It will all come out in the end. Do you hear the language in verses 2 and 3? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. What does that include? Well, that includes everything. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, so he's connecting these dots. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark 
shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I think Jesus is ultimately looking at the great day of judgment when the thoughts and intentions of the heart and every idle word will be examined before the throne of God. And God, by his power, can actually bring things to light even before the final day of judgment. So don't erect facades. Don't have a superficial faith. The second heading here, starting in verse 4 through verse 7, this second paragraph really summons us to fear and trust God Almighty. To fear and trust God Almighty. Don't be influenced by these Pharisees who appear to be one thing, puffed up as they are. There's danger there, but rather reorient, retarget where your faith and fear and awe are placed. Jesus is very blunt in verse 4 as he begins this second paragraph. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Okay, you just told us to be fearful and careful. But Jesus doesn't want the disciples to focus on the bad guys. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to just be on the lookout as a sentry for every fear. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. He doesn't want us to be fear-driven. We've got a mission. We're going, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, we're going where God leads us to get things done for God. And as we go, yes, we will encounter those who are threats. Physical violence can come to believers. But Jesus says very plainly, evil men have their limits of what they can do. I don't want to sound crass or superficial. I am just paraphrasing Jesus. What's the worst that someone can do to you? They can kill your body. But after that, they can't do anything more. That's what Jesus says. After that, have nothing more that they can do. Jesus wants us to see the things that happen in this world have a finite capacity to do us harm. And they're all under the authority of our God. And Jesus says, don't be anxious about that. Yes, physical pain and death are very real. But as one commentator, one scholar pointed out, the obvious, but he put it in print, death is temporary. Let me just remind you what death is. God didn't create death when he created the world uh, and said it was good. There was no sin. There was no death. But when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, there was death. The wages of sin are death. What is death? It's something bad. It's the fruit of sin. It's the separation of spirit and body. When someone dies, their body is laid here and their spirit is present before God. But at the great resurrection, body and spirit will be rejoined to stand judgment. So yes, death is temporary. And for the believer, the sting of death spiritually is gone. For the believer, there's nothing you should fear about death and entering the future or standing before your maker. Yes, the the pain of cancer, disease, injury, 
attack and violence, those are real pains, but they are short-lived. If you haven't read much church history, perhaps you might want to go to a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not a happy book, but it's a faithful account of believers who believe what you and I believe who were killed for their faith, put to death for their love of Jesus and love of the truth. Those days may be closer upon us than we think. But Jesus here emphasizes death is temporary. And Jesus here does not promise escape, but he is saying these things to prepare his people. He knows what these disciples will face. It's said that the apostle Peter, who heard this from Jesus, died by crucifixion. And because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified as Jesus was, tradition says he has to be crucified upside down. All men and women die. How will we die? We're not just talking about dying with dignity. We're talking about dying with faith in Christ who will see us safely across that Jordan River and welcome us home into the Father's presence. He can't say all of that here, but he does say very succinctly, there's only so much these evil men can do. Look instead, let's follow him, verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. And this is where the trajectory has to be adjusted. Fear him whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says there's someone in the battlefield of life you need to pay more attention to than those bad guys that want to hurt your body. He's pointing us to one who has supreme power and authority. Notice he doesn't name God. Rather, he speaks here with a circumlocution. That's a, that he's talking around something. We use that when we speak of death. Someone says saying someone has died. We say someone has passed on. They've gone to their reward. Talking around something, uh, either for politeness or for other effect. Jesus here, for emphasis, refers by this pronoun, him, who, fear him. It's begging the question. It's calling us to think and say there's only one that this applies to. It's the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. The one who gives us life and who holds our life in his hands. Who controls the heart of the king and raises up nations and sets them down. The almighty is in view here. He has supreme power. Be most concerned about him. Be most concerned that you fear and revere and trust him and obey him. God is re- Jesus is reorienting our trajectory Where is our faith? Where is our focus? Is it upon God? Now, in giving us those details, he does say God has the authority. He is God and the power to do it. And he says to cast into hell. And the Greek word there is Gehenna. Uh, Hell is a very real place. Jesus talked about it. This isn't a sermon about hell, so I won't linger on it. But he does name it. And the place is named by A real place in the ancient world that Jesus and everyone else then knew. Just outside the walls of Jerusalem. There was the Mount of Olives on one side and a beautiful 
orchard of olive trees and Jesus would go and pray there and Calvary, Golgotha is not far from there. But on another side, I believe it's towards the south, outside the city walls, there's a deep valley, the Valley of Hinnom with an H. And the, the, the Gehenna is naming that part of that valley outside the city walls that became a dump where not only trash was thrown out and oftentimes it would be burned, but sometimes bodies would be cast out. And over the years, indeed over the centuries, that place was one of the most horrible places in the Middle East. That burning dump of refuse and more. Jesus references Gehenna and creates our concept of hell from that so that we would understand that there is an eternal place of banishment and punishment that we should be aware of. God determines who ends up in hell. So, Jesus says, make the Lord your supreme fear in life. Live to serve and please him. Be most focused on what he wants. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christians, says Phil Riken, are far too easily frightened. Maybe that's a word for some of you. I've studied the doctrine of the fear of God. I enjoy pursuing that, but some of you... Just need to adjust and change and be a little less frightened by things in this world by keeping your eye upon the one who has his eye on the sparrow, on you. So be done with some of those fears. Pray about that. And not only has God the supreme power and should command our supreme attention, notice where Jesus goes immediately after this call. Fear him, fear him. What does he add? He draws in, in the next verse, verse 6 and 7, the great powerful care that God has. His compassion. He is to be feared, but his kindness is magnificent. What does he say specifically? He's talking about sparrows. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Well, I don't know the market price of sparrows today. Jesus is making a point that you can get a lot of sparrows for a penny. Meaning they're cheap, they're simple, they're little. Men might say they're insignificant. Yet, not one of them is forgotten before God. The Lord knows every time a a, a sparrow falls to earth, and it's not talking about a dead sparrow, it's just talking about even their landing, their flitting about. God knows every step of every sparrow. And he'll say at the very end that believers are of more value than many sparrows. So he's pointing about God's care. And in the middle, yes, he says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And some of you, this was when you were younger. I'm following you. Uh, I I had to do the fresh research because I don't know how many hairs are on the human head. It'd be easy to count with some. But they say, and this is a Harvard statistical site. It's called uh, Bio Numbers. It's it's just numbers about the human body. So it's supposed to be a reputable site. It says the number of hairs on your head. Do you have a guess? 90,000 to 150,000 hairs on a human head. And it varies by what color your hair is. 
So here's the good news. Blondes, you, you have on average 150,000 hairs. Brown-haired people, 110,000. Black-haired people, 100,000. Red-haired people, only 90,000, but it is red. And the site gives us more than we need to know. There's over 25,000 body hairs and eyelashes and eyebrows. That's enough. But I wanted to put out the big numbers. So you know that it's not just the little things, but it's the many things. God knows them all. That's impressive. That is so impressive. Not only is God uh, just awesome in his authority and power over life and death and eternity, but God is magnificent and meticulous in his care. That's what Jesus is claiming is that the God you know? That's the God I know. He cares. I often find, I've been a Christian over four decades, I have often found the Lord surprising me with an answer or a blessing that I may have forgotten to ask for or had fallen off my agenda. And I go, oh, the love of God to bring that my way. He cares. So Jesus here, in this middle paragraph, he's preparing his disciples for a tough life in this world. Watch out for the dangers of the Pharisees. Here in this middle paragraph, he's saying, make sure you're oriented properly in this broken world. Not at the enemies and the power they have, which is limited, but look to the powerful one who cares so greatly. Christians. Oh, what needless cares and and worries we have when we have such an amazing God and Jesus came and made him known Jesus is speaking to these disciples and to us about God's supreme care well there's one more paragraph I think that Luke has put together with these things as Jesus continues to press upon them truth and upon us at the beginning of verses 8 through 12 and I tell you he's continuing the lessons and he's going to talk about what comes out of our mouth and our confession what do we say what do we believe and he calls Christians to fearlessly confess Christ fearlessly confess Christ verses 8 to 12 and he begins by saying that there will be pressure to deny Christ it will come your way He says, I tell you, disciples, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So there's going to be this opportunity to speak, to affirm or deny. And the way Jesus is speaking here, let's simplify it. It's as if he's envisioning two courtrooms. One on earth and one in heaven. And the testimony you give in earth is connected to the testimony Christ will give in heaven. So if you affirm him and acknowledge him, Jesus is Lord here. In heaven, before the Father, Jesus will say, I acknowledge. He knows me. He is mine. But if we deny Christ here, in the end, Jesus will deny us in heaven. There's a connection with your words and behavior and confession on earth with what will be found true in heaven. This word acknowledge is what the ESV translates here. 
acknowledges me. Jesus uses it a couple of times. It actually comes from the old Hebrew uh, into Greek to accord praise. To accord praise. That's a perhaps an awkward sentence now that I think of it. But it means to confess or to profess belief or to say this is true and I believe it to be true. The same word is used in Hebrews 13, verse 15. You can jot it down or take a quick peek. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. If you truly believe Jesus is Lord, acknowledge his name, the fruit of your lips will also be praise and worship. Hebrews 13, 15. So to acknowledge is is to assert what's true for you. Jesus is Lord. I hope you can say that. I hope you can say Jesus is my Lord. I hope you can say with David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I think the world often reads Psalm 23, but they don't know the shepherd. It's as if they're saying the Lord is a shepherd. People who believe in him shall not want. It's really a confession, is it not? It can fall from the lips of unbelievers so easily. You see how Jesus started talking about the danger of hypocrisy and fear? And now he's talking about conformity. Remain Christ-like. Don't conform to these other things. Fearlessly confess Christ. There was a there was a man who understood the eternal consequences of what you confess. It was back, yes, in the old uh, days of the Scottish Covenanters and the English Reformation. John Hooper, he was an Englishman. He was sent, and this is the story as told by Phil Reichen. John Hooper was sentenced to die for preaching the gospel during the English Reformation. And some friends tried to persuade him to recant if only he would deny the gospel, not deny Christ, but deny the gospel of justification by faith alone, the Catholic Church would be satisfied and his life would be spared. So just change that Protestant view that you have. But Hooper was viewing things from an eternal perspective. And thus he did not fear those who could only kill his body. This is what he said. Life is sweet and death is bitter. But eternal life is more sweet, and eternal death is more bitter. That's the voice of faith in God. Jesus here goes on also to talk about another thing that might come out of our mouths. Verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What's Jesus' point? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus, uh, and what is blasphemy? It's the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God. Saying that God is really evil. Jesus did what he did by demonic power, that sort of thing. And Jesus gives two cases, speaking against him and speaking against the Holy Spirit. And there's a key distinction there. The first case, Jesus says, if someone speaks against him, and it's general, he doesn't use the word blasphemy, speaks a word against the Son of Man, they'll be forgiven. 
Why is that? Well, Jesus is the ambassador. He's in dialogue. He's coming to bring the gospel. He's going to try and try and try again. He was very patient with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I don't get it. What do you mean born again? Jesus was patient. And Jesus is forgiving. He comes as a messenger, not in judgment. But the second case is more extreme. It refers to the utter denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's rare and it's serious. It would be as if saying Jesus is really of the devil. God is evil in what he does and all of that. And that is the determined position of your heart, not just a passing word of mouth. Now, when Jesus makes this difference, is he saying that the Holy Spirit is more important than him? No. A lot of theologies mess around with making some distinction like that. I I find John Calvin's answer to be very helpful. Calvin wrote this to his congregation in Geneva. It is rather that once God's power has been revealed, that's the Holy Spirit present and revealing. Once God's power has been revealed, there is no longer any excuse on the grounds of ignorance for those who reject him. Blasphemy is serious. You'll find a lot of people who don't care about Jesus. They may use his name in a swear. Jesus is forgiving and forbearing for now. But to go off and join the testimony of demons and to be convinced in your unbelief is dreadful. And if someone here is sweating bullets saying, oh, no, oh, no, I may have committed the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I may never be forgiven. My friend... If you're anxious about this, that is evidence that you have probably not done that. Because the one who was settled in his heart that God is evil and Jesus is not who he claimed to be, doesn't care about offending Jesus. If you care about offending God, your heart is still that good work in progress. Or as Pastor Doug Milne put it, uh, any person anxious about this sin should take comfort that such concern is incompatible with the sin. You can find the same answer from Spurgeon or from any pastor who knows the gospel and the human heart. If you're really in knots about offending God, that's because God has already tenderized your heart and is drawing it to him. The final thing Jesus says in this final paragraph is really neat. After talking about things that come out of our mouths, people might be a little anxious. So how how does Jesus end this uh, time of teaching? Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, these are public places, places of persecution and danger for Christians, just as they were for Jesus. When they bring you there, he says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. See that Jesus in all these paragraphs has talked about some manifestation of fear and getting our trajectory fixed. He says, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What a powerful promise. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. We've got the Holy Spirit. Help. 
the comforter, the counselor, the one who comes alongside. Jesus perhaps smiled as he said that, perhaps, because he knew what would happen with these fishermen when they get dragged before the Sanhedrin. They'll say, hey, we can't help but talk about Jesus. I love what it says in in Acts 4 when Peter and company were arrested. The rulers, elders, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. All the big guns from downtown were there. And all who were of a high priestly family. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they said, by what power and in what name did you do this? Acts 4 verse 8 says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered. He, he gives a great answer. And later on, they're scratching their head because they perceived that these were uneducated common men and they were astonished. But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And the same spirit that helped Jesus was present with them in that moment of persecution. Jesus speaks the truth to his disciples. Be ready. Be careful what you say. But don't hesitate to speak a testimony or witness in difficulty. And Jesus envisions not just Jewish opposition as they face in the first century. He sees the boardroom at work. He sees the break room at work. He sees your relative's house where they may not know and love Jesus and you're there as a Christian. Jesus is with you in the living room, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, on the phone. Do not fear men and do not be afraid to speak as the Holy Spirit helps you. Christians should never aim to give offense, but Christian, do not fear to speak the truth about the one you love and who loved you so. He's with you. The Spirit will help you with your witness. Well, I did want to end with uh, some applications. And if you have the sermon outline sheet, you'll see that there's uh, quite a few little bullet points here for applications. I'm just going to make this list very quickly. I found it so helpful for me. A recap and some applications. Because as Pastor Phil Riken was working through this text, he says, where does all this courage come from? How do I know when my trajectory, that's my term, my trajectory is set properly? And he gives these five quick evidences, things to focus on. And it's just a walk through the text one last time. He says, I know I'm right and I'm, I'm in step with what Jesus counsels, number one, when my heart is free from hypocrisy. So the first preparation is always look to your own heart. Look for the, the log in your own eye and not the speck in someone else's. Start with your own heart. Pray about these things. I knew this was coming and we're driving to church and I'm praying, Lord, keep Dave Bissett from hypocrisy. Guard your heart, say the scriptures, for out of it flow the things of life. Keep your heart free from hypocrisy. Second in Reichen's list, we know we're, we're on this right trajectory. When I fear God more than I fear other people. There are probably some folks that cause you stress and make you tremble, but fear God more. Trust him more. Cling to him more. The fear of God is far from popular. The world is not a reverent place. 
but you know the truth. You know the one who has power over body and soul. Fear God more than other people. Number three, you're in the right place when you know that God cares for you. Remember the sparrows. As a kid, I, I, I didn't care at all about this verse. I, I'm not a bird person. I'll, that's for my mom. She looked out the window and looked at the birds. But Jesus spoke so that the truth would be conveyed to us. Next time you see a little bird, a little sparrow, Jesus didn't talk about eagles or owls or even seagulls. Just that teeny tiny insignificant sparrow to make the point God knows and cares for you. Number four, you're in the right place when I know that if I stand up for Christ, he will stand up for me. That acknowledge and deny section. Will you say something for Christ? He's watching. Whatever you say or don't say, it'll all be uh, on the nightly news on that last day of judgment. So let your love for Christ be evident in what you say. Acknowledge him. Claim him. It's him, I believe. And finally, a fifth point in conclusion. Uh, We're in this right spot, this place of courage and pleasing to God when I trust the Holy Spirit's help. God has given you his very spirit. Expect the Spirit's help. Sometimes he's after you. He's chasing you down saying, oh, here's some guilt because you're doing the wrong thing. But often the Holy Spirit brings you comfort, strength, brings something to your remembrance. What a tremendous gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit for all who believe. My friends, hear these words of Jesus, which time and time again he said, spoke to his friends, his disciples, Because he cares for us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for your word, your true and holy word. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and who will go with us this afternoon and on Monday and all through the week. We thank you that you go with us, you guide us. Help us to direct our fear to you and our awe and and faith to be in you. Father, may you be pleased to do this and get glory in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.